Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Late Night Crimecast. I'm your host, Robin Steffens. You may or may not know me from my YouTube channel, in which I have a crime series based around kidnappings, murders, and the criminals themselves. This show will be very similar to that. So if you're like me and you love true crime, especially if you get tangled in those cases that just keep you up late at night, you're going to love this podcast. Every week on Wednesday, I'm going to post a new true crime story. I will cover cases that are local, cases that got a lot of media attention, and everything in between. Now, I feel like I say that I will cover all of these different types of cases, and so far I feel like I've covered a broad range, but I have yet to do a local case. And by local, I mean a case based in Florida. So with that being said, today, on the sixth episode of Late Night Crimecast, we will be talking about the mysterious disappearance of Tiffany Louise Sessions. Tiffany Louise Sessions was born on 10-29-1968 to her mother Hillary Sessions and father Patrick Sessions. Her parents divorced when she was just eight months old and she stayed with her mother. Her mother was in the U.S. Air Force, so most of her childhood was spent traveling from place to place. She went to school in Davis, California, Austin, Texas, and Boxborough, Massachusetts before enrolling at Lawrence Academy an exclusive boarding school in nearby Groton, Massachusetts. Because of the relationship her mother and her father had, and because of the amount of traveling she and her mother did, Tiffany was not close to her father at all. Her mother eventually ended up getting remarried to a man named Douglas Brown, but she kept the Sessions' last name. Her father eventually remarried a woman named Kitty Sessions, and they had a son named Jason. Tiffany remained her mother's only child. She was very close to her mother, and her mother stated about their relationship that she was the mom, the dad, the disciplinarian, the provider, and that there wasn't anything that they didn't do together, and that they worked as a team. So Tiffany and her mother, they were extremely close. And after growing up all this time, pretty much underneath her mom, Tiffany finally got in her teens and decided to reconnect with her father. Her father was a huge real estate businessman. And so he was pretty busy, but he made time for her. She met his family and her half-brother, Jason. They quickly all became very close to each other, and they began to garner a very close relationship. Her father even bought her a Rolex, and it became something that she never took off. Tiffany was at a good point of her life. She was already really close to her mother, but she was also getting closer with her father and her half-brother. And that didn't change even when she went into college. Tiffany ended up going to college at the University of Florida where she studied finance. She worked hard and had dreams of running a company one day to do something similar to her father and to follow in his footsteps. Unfortunately, she would never get to do that.
Tiffany was a white female with blonde hair and brown eyes. She was 5'3 and 125 pounds. Her nickname was Tiffy and she had several identifying features, her chipped lower front tooth being one of them. She also had a crescent-shaped scar on her left knuckle. Her disappearance didn't take place until February of 1989. She was a 20-year-old junior in college by then and lived in Casablanca East Condominiums with her roommate, Kathleen Frezza. Her roommate says that after the holidays, Tiffany had returned with a goal to lose 14 pounds. She would achieve this by working out and going on walks near the apartment complex to drop the extra weight. She had planned trips and wanted to look good and fit over summer. This was something that many co-eds did and it seemed like it would just be harmless for Tiffany to do on her own. That turned out to be the farthest thing from the truth. It was the night of February 9th, 1989 that Tiffany had set off for a walk and told her roommate Kathleen that she would return within the hour. She left behind her keys, wallet, and jewelry. She had specifically taken off all of her jewelry except for the Rolex her father had given her. Her roommate recalls talking with Tiffany before the walk and Tiffany saying, I'm keeping my watch on. If someone comes after me, they're gonna have to fight me for it. Tiffany was wearing red sweatpants, a long sleeve white pullover sweatshirt with gray horizontal stripes and blue or white low cut Reebok sneakers. She had her watch on of course and her black Sony Walkman in hand. She left her apartment that night for what would end up being the last time. Tiffany had been gone for a few hours when her roommate Kathleen had started to get worried about how long the walk was taking. She ended up driving along Tiffany's walk route thinking that maybe she had possibly gotten hurt. She was thinking that at worst, Tiffany had fallen and needed medical attention. She was unable to find Tiffany on the trail and by that time, Tiffany had been missing for five hours. All of Tiffany's belongings were in the apartment still and her car was still in the parking lot. So Kathleen finally decided to call Tiffany's mom and tell her that her daughter was missing. The day after Tiffany went missing, her parents, Patrick and Hillary, arrived in Gainesville. The police were called, of course, but they did not initially handle the disappearance as a crime. There was no crime scene, no sign that Sessions had left her apartment parking lot, nor were there any signs of a struggle. The only thing that police were able to get that even resembled evidence was witnesses who stated that they saw a woman matching Tiffany's description speaking to several unidentified individuals in a vehicle. The witnesses said that the woman may have entered the car, but they were uncertain of that. The police were unable to confirm if the woman was even Tiffany, so that was basically a dead end. As the days went on, the disappearance became more of an urgent cause. Tiffany did not have any of her belongings. Her car and her keys were still at her apartment complex, and it was very strange. She didn't have a boyfriend or even an intimate relationship with anyone, so there was no one she could have run off with. And she was a smart girl with good grades. It was very unlikely for her to miss out on school or to just up and leave. So it became very apparent that this case was bigger than it appeared. Her parents soon became very involved in her disappearance, especially her father who immediately rose to the occasion. He used his marketing skills to work and organized one of the largest missing person searches in Florida history. He even bought Wayne Black, a private investigator who specialized in recovering missing children into the case. 
Tiffany's face was on billboards and volunteers helped pass out thousands of flyers and answer a 1-800 hotline in relation to her disappearance. Her father set up press conferences and recruited his famous friends like football legend Dan Marino. He really tried to get the word out and make this search nationwide. Anything he could do to help find his daughter. Politician Jeb Bush helped out and so did America's Most Wanted host, John Walsh, whose son Adam was abducted and killed in 1981. I just want you guys to remember that this is before the age of social media. This is before you could just share a picture, like a picture, and spread news online and have it, you know, spread like wildfire. So her father, what he was doing was he was using his networking and basically just every influential person he knew to help spread the word about his missing daughter. And it was working. Just one week after Tiffany disappeared, over 700 people showed up to search the area around her walking route, hoping to find any clues as to what happened to her. It turned up with nothing, but it was still a step towards moving in the right direction for the investigation. On top of that, they were getting over 600 calls on the hotline daily. Despite all of this, the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months. The hopes of finding Tiffany at all especially alive, had really started to dwindle. It wasn't until the detectives got a convincing lead that the case really got back into high gear. Detectives had received a letter from anonymous inmate who stated that a man named Michael Knickerbocker, a convicted serial rapist and murderer serving five life sentences, confessed to killing Tiffany. Detectives went in to talk to him and immediately their one true lead had fallen apart. He had not confessed at all to the detectives that he had been involved in Tiffany's disappearance. In fact, he more so taunted the police, suggesting that he didn't kill her, but then he would go on to say, if I did kill her, this is how I would do it. Eventually, he confessed that he had written the letter himself as a mean joke. It was pretty much something that the police had to go by, especially because he didn't even live in Gainesville at the time of Tiffany's disappearance. After this lead fell apart, her father tried something new. He put out a cash reward. This actually led him to three extortion attempts. One that left him traveling all over Miami while on the phone with a man who said that he knew where Tiffany was, that she was alive, and that she needed medical help. And he said that he would kill her if her father hung up. That attempt turned out to be a con artist who was caught by the FBI and sent to prison for over six years. So basically, this money reward thing didn't lead to anything, only more heartbreak. And honestly, I don't know how her parents went through all of this. It's really heartbreaking to think that people would do this to the family when they were at their most vulnerable and just desperate to see their daughter again. So like, you honestly think that things couldn't get any worse, but then they do. One year after Tiffany went missing, five students in Gainesville are murdered within four days. So there's a serial killer on the loose. And this obviously brings up the question, had Tiffany been a victim of this? Was the person who killed these kids the same one who had killed Tiffany? It was just weeks later that an ex-con named Danny Rowling was arrested. He confessed to the five Gainesville student murders and the detectives dropped him as a possible suspect in Tiffany's case 
when they learned that he was actually in Shreverport, Louisiana, the evening Tiffany disappeared. Another lead that went nowhere. Despite all of this, despite all the leads that fell through, all of the people that tricked them into believing that they knew something, despite all of this, her father and his team, they worked towards finding Tiffany's killer for 25 years. So Tiffany's case had gone cold, but eventually a detective named Detective Allen, he was assigned to work Tiffany's case. Her case was made priority. So this is in January of 2013. Her case is finally being worked on again. And they come across another lead, a convicted serial killer named Paul Eugene Rowles. Here's some background on him. In 1972, he killed his first victim, a former beauty queen, Linda Fida. At the time, Rawls was newly married and he was a 23-year-old architect student. Linda Fida was a neighbor of his. They lived in an apartment complex in North Miami. He would literally stalk her and watch her every move. So he knew where she was, when she would be there, everything like that. So one day when Fida decided to go do her laundry, Rawls snuck into her apartment and when she returned, he tried to rape her. She ended up fighting back and he ended up strangling her. At the crime scene, the only evidence they found were band-aids and they were actually able to get prints off of them. And during that same investigation, just a day after the murder, they ended up knocking on Rawls' door and immediately noticed he had band-aids on his toes. So they immediately took him in and got his prints and it was a match. After that, he was arrested and he quickly confessed to the crime. He was sentenced to a life in prison for the murder. But in 1985, his sentence was abruptly cut short when he was suddenly released and out on parole. He only had to serve 13 years of his life sentence. Now fast forward to 1988. He's living in Gainesville where he works as a pizza delivery man. And he also has another job and it's putting up scaffolding on an apartment complex. And guess where it's located? Right on Tiffany's walking route. One year after Rawls moved to Gainesville, Tiffany Sessions disappeared, and it turns out that he did not show up for his pizza delivery job on the day Tiffany vanished. Then, in 1992, just three years after Tiffany went missing, a woman named Beth Foster, another college student, was found murdered just one mile from where Tiffany went walking. And just two months after Beth Foster's murder, he quietly left town. While living in the area, despite his history, he was never questioned by police for either case. It wasn't until 1994 that he struck again, this time in Jacksonville. He raped and attempted to kill a 15-year-old girl. She was able to escape and identify him as her attacker. 
He again gave a full confession and was convicted and sent to prison for good this time. So like I said, these crimes, they happened before technology had really started to boom. So over the next few years, DNA technology advanced and detectives immediately submitted Raul's DNA to the FBI database to see if he could have possibly killed others. They hadn't even managed to connect it to any of the crimes that had happened in Gainesville from Tiffany to this Beth Foster. But finally, in 2012, they found a match to Beth Foster's case. So soon after figuring this out, the police, and specifically the detective on Tiffany's cold case, started to think that Rowles could be involved in her disappearance. But it was too late. When the detective went to question him in December of 2013, Rowles was in a coma and dying of lung cancer. He ended up dying almost two weeks later. Now you would think this is it, a dead end after all of that work, but no, there's more. After Riles died, the detective ended up going to his cell and emptying out its contents. Riles didn't have much and the detective didn't really think he would find much until he found the address book. In the book, Riles had written down the names of all of his victims, Linda Fita, Elizabeth Foster, or Beth Foster, and the 15-year-old girl he raped and attempted to kill in Jacksonville. But in the middle of all of that was a number two and the date that Tiffany went missing. They took this as Tiffany being his second victim and then, of course, the date that she went missing to correspond. They found this was proof enough, but although the investigators and family agree that he likely killed Tiffany, there hasn't been enough evidence to prove it without a doubt and Tiffany's body has never been recovered. Okay guys, so what do you guys think of today's case? I feel like it's a bit incompleted and that's because it technically is unsolved even though they do have this address book with names and dates, but I do feel like Riles was definitely involved in her disappearance. It's just so unfortunate that he died before he could confess to it because he seems to be a person who would confess to a crime if he committed it and he gets caught. I mean, he did it before twice in cases that he was caught in. So it's really sad that he couldn't confess to it and just say where her body was to give her family that kind of closure. But anyway, that's it for today's Crimecast. Thank you so much for listening and tune in next Wednesday for more. Thank mm-hmm. you.